Ukraine, China, North Korea, Medicare, car insurance. Today, we're discussing breaking news and how the U.S. corporate media functions as a propaganda machine. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Socialist Program. I'm producer Nicole Roussel, and I'm here with Brian Becker. If you enjoy or rely on the show or both, please show your support by subscribing to our show on patreon.com slash the socialist program. Today, instead of dealing with just one topic, we're going to be dealing with some of the breaking news stories of the day. We want to highlight how the media is treating the news. And of course, that speaks directly to why we need alternative media like the socialist program. So again, thank you to all of our patrons for making independent media like our program possible. Brian, first, we want to talk about the very big threat that's posed to the U.S. National Treasury, the thing that might make the country go bankrupt. Obviously, the big threat to the National Treasury is the amount of money spent by the U.S. every year on the military. But Brian, why don't you tell us, you know, I'm guessing that's not what this article is actually about. No, shockingly, Nicole, the mainstream media, the New York Times in this case, isn't identifying the almost $1 trillion that the United States spends every year on death and destruction on the Pentagon, on the military budget. No, the big threat happens to be healthcare. Yeah, healthcare. Here it is. A huge threat to the U.S. budget has receded, and no one is sure why. I was thinking like, wait, did they cut the defense budget? Because Perhaps we would have known about that, but no. Nicole, this is about Medicare. For decades, runaway Medicare spending was the story of the federal budget. Now flat Medicare spending might be a bigger one. Something strange has been happening in this giant federal program. Instead of growing and growing as it always had before, spending per Medicare beneficiary has nearly leveled off over more than a decade. Okay, so the article is somewhat interesting because it talks about why Medicare costs and expenses have gone down, or not gone down, but leveled off. But the point here is a huge threat to the U.S. budget has receded. I mean, the U.S. spends, again, this year will be almost $900 billion on death and destruction on the military budget. And I've never once seen a headline like a huge threat to the U.S. budget whether it's receded or not receded. And again, it's how the media treats the Pentagon budget in particular. It's not so much about whether Medicare spending is big or too big or whatever. I mean, the reason it's so big or has been big in the past is that the U.S. government basically uses it as a subsidy for pharmaceutical companies that are making extraordinary profits to healthcare insurance companies. These are capitalist corporations that don't actually provide healthcare, but you have to buy insurance in order to access healthcare coverage. And the Affordable Care Act that was passed during the Obama years, while it obviously made some beneficial steps forward in terms of providing more 
healthcare coverage for more people. It expanded Medicaid. It expanded eligibility for Medicaid, that is for people who are low income. It also completely privatized healthcare. So in order to get any healthcare, you have to go through these capitalist healthcare insurance companies. And then there are private hospitals. So you have pharmaceuticals, insurance companies, and hospitals getting huge profits from Medicare. So the reason the Medicare budget is high is because of the profit element in the healthcare system, the healthcare delivery system in the United States. But that's not my point. My point is this. The media, and that's what we're doing our show about, says a huge threat to the U.S. budget has receded. The reason they won't ever use a huge threat, the language of a huge threat about the Pentagon budget, is that, you know, it will stir anti-Pentagon feelings in the country. And as a consequence, whoever writes the article, whoever writes the headline, and certainly the media publisher, will be targeted by the military-industrial complex. So instead, they just simply function as a benign echo chamber, sort of mouthing the phrases of the military-industrial complex. Every weapon system, every new expenditure, every new outlay of money, again, almost a trillion dollars a year, profit guaranteed to the military-industrial complex contractors, that's considered to be on such a pedestal that you know, nobody is going to actually use language that it's a, quote, huge threat to the U.S. budget. Anyway, we're going to talk about some other stories in terms of domestic issues. I want to especially talk again about insurance companies. But Nicole, let's go back to some of the amazing language in the media about Ukraine and about Russia. I mean, it's just amazing how when you really, we've taken a lot of time in the last couple of days looking at all the headlines from different media outlets, the clear propaganda function of this corporate-owned media is so clear. It's not news. It's not information and analysis in any sort of independent way. It's an echo chamber. I want to talk about some of the recent coverage that's unabashed, unashamed about how the media is covering the war and U.S. expenditures for the war. I want to start with an op-ed piece that was in several media outlets published, written by Senator Blumenthal. He's a Democrat. Here it is. Zelensky doesn't want or need our troops, but he deeply and desperately needs the tools to win. And here's Blumenthal. He's a senator, right? This is in the media. This is how, how the U.S. people are getting... You never see anti-war op-eds, or if they are, they're very meek and mild, but mainly all pro-war. But listen to this language, Nicole. And we've talked about the callous coverage in the New York Times about Ukrainian casualties. The New York Times had an article, which we covered in our show a couple of weeks ago, where they quote U.S. government officials, civilian and Pentagon, saying that their main worry right now is that Ukrainians are becoming casualty averse and using munitions and equipment rather than sending infantry human beings into Russian minefields. And as a consequence, in order to minimize casualties because the Ukrainian government or the Ukrainian people are becoming casualty averse, meaning not wanting to die in the record numbers that they have been dying, that they're going through what the New York Times called precious equipment get that? Precious equipment. The Ukrainian lives that we're supposedly caring so much about, 
they're not apparently as precious as the U.S. and NATO military equipment. So the main complaint in the New York Times article echoing the U.S. government was Ukrainians are becoming casualty averse. Nicole, you have the op-ed in front of you. Let's read it for people. I mean, Blumenthal's opinion piece, it's amazing. It really is. It starts, quote, Even Americans who have no particular interest in freedom and independence in democracies worldwide should be satisfied that we're getting our money's worth on our Ukraine investment. For less than 3% of our nation's military budget, we've enabled Ukraine to degrade Russia's military strength by half. We've united NATO and caused the Chinese to rethink their invasion plans for Taiwan. We've helped restore faith and confidence in American leadership, moral and military all without a single American service woman or man injured or lost and without any diversion or misappropriation of American aid, unquote. And let's be so clear that that last part is, at a minimum, very much a lie. Yeah. We know that a lot of aid and quote-unquote aid, which means weapons, were deeply diverted, at a minimum, from where they were supposed to be going in Ukraine. Yeah, so U.S. taxpayers are, you know, they've spent like, whatever, $160, 200000000000 billion dollars on weapons that have gone to Ukraine for this proxy war with Russia, a war that could be ended. I mean, if you actually care about Ukrainians, as we have said 1,000 times on this show, your main goal would be to, to end the war. And that is only going to happen by going to the negotiating table. Russia's big enough, strong enough, and has big enough red lines about not letting NATO put advanced weapon systems on its borders that Russia is not going to, quote, lose the war, even though this is the fantasy of Blumenthal and all these other imperialist senators and congresspeople, not to mention the White House and the Pentagon and Wall Street, etc. But if you care about Ukrainians, you want to get back to the negotiating table. You want to have a peaceful resolution. But here's Blumenthal. I want to just emphasize to everybody what he's actually saying and what the media coverage is like. He says, we're getting our money's worth on our Ukraine investment, our Ukraine investment. If anybody is wondering whether or not this is a proxy war with Russia, just listen to Richard Blumenthal. We are getting our money's worth on our Ukraine investment, meaning the war itself is the investment. And it's Ukrainians are dying. He says, all without a single American service woman or man injured or lost. But according to the New York Times and the articles that we've been talking about, there are as many as a half a million casualties between Ukraine and Russia. Hundreds of thousands of people are dead or horribly wounded. And he can cavalierly say, we're getting our money's worth I mean, doesn't this make everyone who's actually thinking objectively understand that Ukraine is nothing but a geostrategic pawn in a big geostrategic game that the United States imperial government and Pentagon is waging against both Russia and China? And he says, we've united NATO. Oh, we've united NATO. I thought NATO was united because Russia invaded Ukraine. We've united NATO, meaning he's very happy. He's happy that Russia invaded Ukraine because it allowed NATO to be united under U.S. leadership. And he says it's caused the Chinese to rethink their invasion plans for Taiwan. What? I mean, the U.S. said in Shanghai communique 1972, again in 79, again in 1984, that Taiwan is part of China. I mean, can the United States 
If the United States sends military forces to Hawaii, is that a U.S. invasion of Hawaii? I mean, the U.S. has recognized legally that Taiwan is part of China. And there's no evidence at all, at all, that China was thinking about an invasion plan for Taiwan. Uh, China and Taiwan are major trading partners with each other. It's been very beneficial for both sides. And both sides in the past, and China today says, we and only we, the Chinese people living on both sides of the Taiwan Strait, will determine the ultimate status of Taiwan, but it will be part of China. What the next steps are will be determined by us, not by the United States, not by the Pentagon, not by NATO. Again, this is like complete imperialist propaganda presented in U.S. media outlets, and again, without questioning. I want also, you know, Nicole, we have played before, and I want to play it again for our audience, because this is something that didn't get much media coverage. But back in 2014, when the U.S. government and the EU supported a coup d'etat on February 22nd, 2014, that militarily overthrew Yes, there were militias, armed militias that overthrew a democratically elected government, made January 6th look more or less like a tea party, overthrew a democratically elected government, arms in hand, dispersed the government, dispersed the parliament. The president left the country, otherwise he would have been killed. And during that whole time, Victoria Nuland, who originally had been Hillary Clinton's press spokesperson at the State Department and then later an assistant secretary of state, she's a Democrat, John McCain, who's a Republican, Lindsey Graham, all of them were talking and and actually going to Ukraine and loving the right wing, ultra right, including some of the fascist forces in Ukraine. They weren't all fascists, but there were definitely fascists there. They were all about them when they carried out the coup d'etat, and that coup d'etat, which then overthrew a government that had pledged neutrality, that Ukraine would be neutral, never be part of NATO, that it would be you know, with the European Union, but also with Russia, in other words, in between, neutral. All of those figures, Newland, John McCain, Lindsey Graham, and the New York Times and all the media hailed it as a great day when this fascist-led coup d'etat toppled the Yanukovych government. And we played Victoria Nuland talking to the U.S. ambassador in Ukraine right before the coup. And she's talking about who the new Ukrainian government's going to be. That's where the crisis today in Ukraine really takes off, is with the coup led by or supported by the U.S. But I want to just play the clip, Nicole, if we have it, the Victoria Nuland clip, and just frame it, if you would, for us. Yeah, this is Victoria Newland on January 28th, 2014. And like you said, she is, you won't hear U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, Jeffrey Pyatt, but she's on the phone with the ambassador to Ukraine, the U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, Jeffrey Pyatt, and they are deciding who will be the next prime minister of Ukraine. Here it is. I don't think Cleet should go into the government. I don't think it's necessary. I don't think it's a good idea. I think Yats is the guy who's got the economic experience, the governing experience. He's, he's the guy, you know, what he needs is Cleet and Tani Book on the outside. He needs to be talking to them four times a week, you know. I, I, I just think Cleet going in, he's going to be at that level working for Yatsenyuk. It's just not going to work. So that would be great, I think, to help glue this thing and have the UN help glue it and, you know, the EU. Yeah, so that's Victoria Newland determining that Yatsenyuk, who's not 
part of the fascist. He's a right winger, but he's not a fascist. But the other people who are the glue, that includes fascists. So the U.S. is picking who, who the new leader will be in Ukraine before the coup d'etat, right? Nicole, you said that was January 28th, 2014? Yep, January 28th, 2014. Yeah, so that's January 28th. The coup happens February 22nd. And Yatsenyuk, who she's talking about, actually becomes the prime minister for a while. So she's naming who the next government will be. Now, that was a big shock, obviously, to the Russian government. And the Russian government had not only seen Ukraine as, you know, for hundreds of years, whatever the Russian government was in the old Russian Empire, and then during the Soviet era, even though Ukraine had a, a distinct status, it was the Soviet Socialist Republic of Ukraine, and the Russians were the Russian Soviet Socialist Republic. They were part of one country, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. And so you had Ukraine as part of Russia for, you know, since time immemorial. At different times, Kiev was the capital of Russia. At other times, Moscow was the capital of Russia. But Russia and Ukraine very integrated. Ukraine was never a distinct form of government until 1922. And then it takes the form of a Soviet Socialist Republic in union with the Russian Soviet Socialist Republic. And the Soviet government had its largest military base in Crimea. Crimea was part of Russia up until 1954, when Khrushchev transfers administrative authority of Crimea to Ukraine. Again, that was not that significant because they were all one country. So you have the historicality of Ukraine with Russia. But then there's the other element, which is that if Ukraine's government was toppled as it was in the coup in 2014, it then said it wanted to enter NATO and Crimea, which was part of Ukraine and also the Russian military base, the largest military base and a warm water port would become a NATO base. Of course, Russia was not going to allow that. And that's when Russia basically annexed Crimea after a referendum where the people in Crimea voted. And because they're ethnically Russian, they voted to associate with Russia. But it was an annexation, no question about it. But still, would any of that have happened if it wasn't for this U.S.-led coup d'etat overthrowing a neutral government and putting into, into place a pro-NATO government that was determined to join NATO? And here we have... You know, Richard Blumenthal, everybody, we're getting our money's worth right now by the Ukraine war. These people don't give a damn about Ukrainians. Like if you think like a lot of liberal people who vote Democratic, who are anti-Trump, you know, for good reason, they think, well, the Democrats are, are against Russia. The Democrats are for the Ukrainian people. Trump and the Republicans are more pro-Russian. So they're anti-Russian and they're pro-Ukrainian. You're being 100% duped by this war propaganda. If you care about Ukrainians, and if the Democratic Party or the U.S. government, the Biden administration, cared about Ukrainians, they wouldn't be talking about Ukraine like as if we're getting our money's worth by the hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians who are either being killed or wounded. You know, if that's what our, quote, investment is, that shows that it's completely imperialist and that the Ukrainians are being used 
in the most cynical, cynical way. You know, Nicole, I want to go on to another story. You notice that Kim Jong-un is meeting with Putin. Yes, this is big news, Brian. Putin and Kim Jong-un are meeting. How is, I mean, we're, we're talking about the media today, about the U.S. media. How is the U.S. media handling that? And what's going on in the meeting, too? Yeah, so North Korea finds new leverage in the Ukraine war. Kim Jong-un is likely to seek missile and warhead technology in an expected visit to Russia, and he's already getting a public embrace he has long sought. So now they're acting as if Kim Jong-un is taking advantage of the Ukraine war for the embrace that he has long sought. Okay, and there's a picture of Kim Jong-un with Putin. Here's the first paragraph. For Kim Jong-un, the leader of North Korea, a rare trip to Russia this month to discuss military aid for President Vladimir Putin's Ukraine war effort could provide two things that the North has wanted for a long time, technical help with its weapons program and to be finally needed by an important neighbor. North Korea has not been used to getting a lot of attention other than global condemnation for its nuclear and intercontinental ballistic missile tests. But Russia's urgency to make new gains in the war is offering Mr. Kim a bit of geopolitical spotlight and a new way to both irk, irk, got that, Nicole? A new way to irk the United States and draw closer to Moscow and to Beijing. You know, this is another example of very cynical, ridiculously cynical media coverage, as if finally Kim Jong-un, who's had no attention in the international spotlight, is finally getting some attention, you know, and he's getting some support and he's getting that kind of embrace from a neighbor that he's long sought. Well, you know, what's missing from that article, Nicole, is that Kim Jong-un met twice in summits with Donald Trump that Donald Trump went first to Singapore and then to Hanoi. And there was a possibility that North Korea and South Korea and the Korean Peninsula and the Korean people were going to finally have an end to the military conflict that began in late June, 1950, where an armistice in July, July 27th, 1953, ended the Korean War. But there's been no end to the conflict. The war goes on and on. The division of the peninsula goes on and on. The U.S. continues to arm South Korea. And as a consequence of its threats against North Korea, North Korea started developing nuclear weapons and also intercontinental ballistic missiles. And, you know, the article says it normally is in the media only because of the widespread international condemnation of North Korea's weapons program. Well, it's the United States that has thousands of nuclear weapons. It's the United States that has the most advanced intercontinental ballistic missiles. It's the United States that stages war games, so-called war exercises twice a year that simulate, literally simulate the destruction of North Korea, including the invasion of the country, the assassination of Kim Jong-un and other top leaders of North Korea. It's the United States that's doing that to North Korea. Korea's military budget each year is about the size, as we've said before, of the New York City Police Department budget. And when Trump met with Kim Jong-un in Singapore, they signed an agreement. They signed something called 
the Singapore summit statement. Here it is. Joint statement of President Donald J. Trump of the United States of America and Chairman Kim Jong-un of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea at the Singapore summit. Now, that summit was in June 2018. I was there. I was covering this summit. I covered both summits for our show. Here's what the statement says. This was signed by Kim Jong-un and Trump. Again, I want people to remember this as they're reading the New York Times article about how all Kim Jong-un wants is an embrace from a neighbor and to be in the spotlight. Here's what Kim Jong-un actually agreed to with Trump. One, the United States and the DPRK commit to establish new U.S.-DPRK relations in accordance with the desire of the peoples of the two countries for peace and prosperity. That's number one. Number two, the United States and the DPRK will join their efforts to build a lasting and stable peace regime on the Korean Peninsula. Number three, reaffirming the April 27, 2018 Panmunjom Declaration, the DPRK commits to work towards a complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. So that's point number three. So point one is they were going to establish new, better relations, normal relations. Number two, they're going to build a lasting and stable peace regime on the Korean Peninsula. And number three, DPRK commits to work towards complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula if point one and two are satisfied. So my point is that by the media coverage being as it is, that Kim Jong-un is, quote, taking advantage of the Ukraine war in order to strengthen his ties and get more technological and military assistance from Russia, there was another way. I mean, Kim Jong-un committed to establishing this peace regime on the Korean Peninsula in a joint statement with the United States president at that time. And it was only the U.S. side at the second day of the Hanoi summit, the second summit, that basically torpedoed the conditions for the affecting of what would be basically a peace deal. And it was none other than Trump's national security advisor, John Bolton, you know, war maniac, lunatic, I would say. I'm putting air quotes around it because Bolton has never tried to change his image from something other than that. He was the one who convinced Trump to scuttle the agreement. Again, this is imperialist media coverage, because if you want to really know what's in Kim Jong-un's mind, go back to the Hanoi and Singapore summit and see the agreements that he actually signed, because he clearly wasn't seeking more nuclear weapons. He was seeking a new peace regime on the Korean peninsula. Brian, you know, there's another part to this that the U.S. media rarely, if ever, covers. But our friend Amanda Yee at Asia Times did cover it. And I, I want to read a couple of pieces from it. So the, the article is entitled, Korean War Continues with U.S. Renewal of Travel Ban to North. The draconian ban prevents as many as 100,000 Koreans in the United States from visiting family members in North Korea. And the piece starts, on August 22, the U.S. State Department renewed its ban on the use of American passports for travel to North Korea. This travel ban prohibits as many as 100,000 Korean Americans living in the United States from visiting their relatives in North Korea. The ban was first set in place by the Donald Trump administration in 2017, and in spite of Korean American activists' repeated calls to lift the draconian prohibition, it has been renewed annually ever since. Brian, I mean, this is huge. Yeah, just think, everybody, people in the United States are told, you live in a free country, 
but you don't have the right to freely travel to North Korea. If you travel to North Korea, you are violating a U.S. law, and it's most likely not only might you be charged, but the U.S. government's going to seize your passport. Now, I was organizing, along with other people, something called the Korea Peace Tours up until the time of the travel ban, which it was done you know, under Trump, when Trump in the first year was before he initiated or responded to North Korea's appeal for a peace negotiation, he was threatening North Korea. He said, we're going to, he called Kim Jong-un little rocket man or some terrible thing like that and threatened to annihilate North Korea. That's He said that from the from the podium at the UN General Assembly meeting, and that was in 2017. So Trump was the one who banned travel to North Korea. Up until that time, I was, along with others, taking people to go to North Korea so that they could see North Korea for themselves. So we had something called Korea Peace Tours. We sent, I think it was two delegations before the ban took effect. And our main point was, you know, you hear all of these horrible negative things about North Korea. You don't have to be like a cheerleader necessarily for North Korea, but you might want to find out what it's like. And you might want to find out what it's like by going there. So we were organizing trips and they were people from all walks of life, not leftists, not, you know, people who were necessarily sort of politically focused on Korean issues, but people who wanted to travel were very curious, were sort of wondering what what are things like in North Korea? So we had Korea peace tours and then we were the last delegation there, actually. Korea Peace Tours was shut down. We shut down Korea Peace Tours because it was became illegal to travel. That was Trump who did that. And now Biden has gone ahead and resumed the travel ban. So like Americans couldn't visit Cuba in the early years after the Cuban Revolution until African-American journalist William Worthy, who was writing for the Washington African-American you know, deliberately violated the travel ban, went to Cuba, was put on trial, was convicted, and then he appealed, and the case went all the way to the Supreme Court. And then the Supreme Court ruled that the United States could not prevent Americans from traveling to Cuba, that it was a violation of people's, you know, constitutional rights to be able to travel. That's when the U.S. State Department imposed other restrictions on travel where you could quote, go to Cuba, but you could never spend more than, I think it was $100. So there was new ways in order to stop Americans from going to Cuba and seeing what Cuba was like for itself. So here we are, the Biden administration doing as they did with Cuba, where Trump made these new coercive measures against Cuba and against North Korea, and Biden is continuing them. Anyway, a sad day for people who think that they live in a free country, but they're not free to travel to North Korea. Nicole, let's go on. There's two more stories. I want to talk about, you know, something at home, auto insurance costs. It seems like kind of mundane compared to everything else, but it really impacts people. And then I want to turn back again to China. Yeah, let's go back to insurance. I mean, we started this episode talking about Medicare, which is insurance, and we're back here with car insurance. I mean, car insurance companies are ripping everyone off. No one can pay their car insurance. Let's talk about this story. Yeah, this is the Washington Post. Drivers squeezed as auto insurance costs soar across the U.S. as like, oh, is that just a thing? No, the insurance companies are raising premiums. 
these CEOs and these capitalist corporations, you're legally required to get insurance. It's private capitalist-owned insurance companies who get to decide how much we pay or have to pay in order to have car insurance without which we can't drive. Insurance executives and regulators blame rising repair costs and an increase in disaster-related claims. Now, get that, Nicole. You know, there's been all of these extreme weather events, hurricanes, tornadoes. As a consequence of global warming and climate change, there's more disaster happening. So the insurance companies, people pay for wind insurance, flood insurance, home insurance, all kinds of insurance that you have to pay these capitalists in order to provide some coverage. And then a disaster hits and they don't really want to foot the bill. Or what they've done for large swaths of Florida now, people can't get insurance anymore. They're not renewing the insurance. And they were very, you know, they were fighting with people about paying their claims, especially like after Hurricane Ian destroyed so much of Southern Florida. So now the insurance companies, which sell home insurance, flood insurance, wind insurance, et cetera, all these things related to your home, because their profits have diminished as a consequence of recent extreme weather events, they're just passing the buck along, literally the cost along to people who own cars. Car insurance is a growing burden for Kalisa Hobbs. She lives near the northern shore of Louisiana's Lake Pontchartrain. She said the cost of her auto coverage jumped 30% this year when State Farm added hundreds of dollars to her annual premium, raising it to $1,806. Quote, I'm not going to go hungry or homeless, but like everybody else, I live on a budget. And when that budget gets interrupted, it's difficult. It's just on my credit card and I'll pay it off when I can. Hobbs has been, this is the Washington Post, swept up in a larger trend affecting hundreds of thousands of American drivers, soaring car insurance rates with some states seeing increases above 50% in the last year. And then it goes over and shows a map of the country. You know, Nicole, if people can't, pay their car insurance. And again, they also can't pay the interest rates on cars because, and we did this show with Richard Wolf a couple of weeks ago, there's a record rate of defaults on cars that people have purchased with very high interest rates. And now they have the extra cost of soaring insurance. In large parts of the country, if you can't keep your car, either because interest rates are too high or because insurance costs have been you know, driven up through the roof by price gouging insurance companies, you can't get to work. And there's these record foreclosures on cars. That's the last thing many workers will sacrifice because if you can't drive, if you don't have a car, you can't get to work. And then everything else in your life collapses. We know there's a rising tide of homelessness in the United States. All of these things are interconnected. And again, this is a problem that is caused by the capitalist system. But if you read this article and you, they have these heart-wrenching stories about people who are losing their cars, none of the articles in the capitalist-owned media say, well, this is the fault of capitalism. Rising rates, here again in the article, rising rates especially hurt those who rely on their vehicles to get to work or manage family life Experts say with many drivers seeing their budgets stretched to the brink, 
Anyway, Nicole, this is a criminal system where people have to have a car to go to work. The cars are already too expensive. Car prices never go down. Now insurance costs are way up, up 50%, not because something the car driver did, but because the insurance companies want to make up their losses elsewhere and pass it on to the driving public. And also because the Federal Reserve deliberately raised interest rates to drive up interest rates, to slow down the economy, to create basically a semi-recession-like situation for tens of millions of working people. Again, none of that hurts the affluent. None of that hurts the capitalist corporations. But for many people, it means the difference between keeping your job and your home or losing it. And again, these are, quote, interesting stories, but there's no blame about the huge threat, as we said in the article, the headline from the Medicare article, the huge threat facing the American people, especially the working class, based on this kind of capitalist system. Right. I mean, this is the threat. The threat is that people in this country can't live. They can't get to work. They can't, you know, not only are you not guaranteed a job in this country, but you're not guaranteed a right to a car or to public transit or to any way to even be able to get there or to feed yourself to be able to keep functioning all day. Like, how many of these things can people take all together? You know, you're not getting raises, you're not getting, our wages aren't matching what we actually need to live. Housing prices are skyrocketing. It's only a matter of time, you know, like there's just only so many things that we can take. This is like the perfect definition of bourgeois democracy. People losing their cars and their homes, but they have the right to vote every two years for Congress people, most of whom are, you know, perpetually incumbents. Or you get to vote for senators every six years in an election that takes place every four years, and you get to vote for president every four years. But it's the Supreme Court, unelected, you know, begowned corporate lawyers and law professors, six of whom decide to take away women's right to control their own bodies. It's insurance companies who are elected by no one who decide you're going to pay 50% more for insurance. The Federal Reserve, which is like the dictatorship of the banks, nobody knows outside of Jerome Powell, who is the richest man in the Federal Reserve system. He is worth $55 million. Nobody knows the names of the Federal Reserve Board of Governors, and yet they determine what interest rates are going to be. You know, People actually don't have any basic democratic rights over the things that are most important. You just get to vote for one or another of the two ruling class parties every two or four years. And then the media, the same media that, you know, sort of functions as an echo chamber for the capitalist elites, drums into people's heads about why this is so democratic, why it's such a wonderful democracy. Unlike Russia and unlike China, we get to vote for you know, the corrupt politicians who are going to allow a system that oppresses us for the next two or four years to continue to oppress us. Apparently, that's enough for democracy. But the socialist program, those of us who are arguing for real democracy, means ending the dictatorship of the rich, ending the dictatorship of the Fortune 500, or certainly the top 100 monopoly corporations and banks. It means providing basic needs for all of society, including the working class, including people with low income, the right to be able to go to school, the right to eat good food, the right to have affordable rent, the right to go to a doctor and not be you know, forced into bankruptcy. Uh, these are the rights that the working class does not have. And these are the rights that the socialist program, for instance, insists 
are the sort of the bedrock of a real democracy, unlike bourgeois democracy, which is basically the right of the capitalists to exploit labor. Exactly. And that brings us to our last story, because we could actually pay for every single thing that you just listed, all the rights that we actually need as human beings. If this government, the United States government, was not preparing for some reason for war with China, the biggest country with the biggest population on the entire planet. And if you take a quick summary of the headlines right now, you can't but help come to the conclusion that the media in the United States is sounding more and more like a one-note choir that we have to get ready for war with China, which I think is very clear is the opposite of what we need to be doing. The real story that they're emphasizing is that we're not ready yet for war with China, but that we must get ready for war with China. But the question of, is this a good idea? Is this in the people of the United States' best interest? Is this something that we want to do or even need to do? None of those things are actually being discussed. Brian, I want to read a few of these headlines. I mean, here's one from the New York Times. Faced with evolving threats, U.S. Navy struggles to change. The state of the U.S. Navy as China builds up its naval force and threatens Taiwan. That's from CBS. Wall Street Journal. The U.S. isn't ready to face China on the battlefield. A similar one from Newsweek. U.S. military is underprepared for war with China, General warns. Where's my favorite one? Study from the Hill. Defense industry unprepared for war with China. Again, why are these the headlines, Brian? Why are these the headlines? Yeah, and there's more. I mean, U.S. not ready to quickly produce and ship weapons system panel finds. U.S. defense industry isn't ready for war with China. Another report. You know, why is a U.S. general predicting war with China by 2025? I mean, when you look at all of those headlines, and Nicole, what you cited, it's Newsweek, it's Wall Street Journal, it's CBS, Washington Post. The main message of the headlines is, we're not ready for a war with China. Like, as if, like, these reporters and editors are, you know, their main worry right now is that we're not ready for a war with China. I mean, China's not going to invade the United States. China is not sending Chinese naval vessels and Chinese aircraft, you know, in the area around the U.S. mainland or around Hawaii or Alaska. China's not doing that. China, the big accomplishment for China in the last decade is that it could announce that 850 million of its people had been raised out of extreme poverty. What is extreme poverty? According to the Chinese sort of definition of what extreme poverty is, it means you're making, I think, uh, $2.3 a day, right? Which is also the UN's definition, too. It's $2 a day. Yeah. I think the Chinese definition is slightly a little bit different than the UN definition, but it's in the same ballpark. So if you have 850 million people, which is almost three times as many people as live in the entire United States, and you, you're touting as a major accomplishment that you're raising them out of an income level where they were making $2 a day, well, what are, what are they making now? Is it $5 a day? $6 a day. I mean, it's huge progress. It's huge. We've done many shows about it. We talked to Ting's Chak, who did that wonderful book and survey about it. But that's what China's thinking about. Like, how do they overcome the legacy of underdevelopment, the legacy of poverty? And because it's a big country, because the system that they have, the system run by the Communist Party, which is the ruling party in the government, 
it's been constructed in a way that it's a mixed economy, but it's obviously making major strides in areas of technology, big strides in education, the number of STEM graduates, that's science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. You know, it's like double in China from what it is in the United States. So China is emerging from being very underdeveloped, very poor, but it's not looking for a global confrontation with the United States. It wasn't China that said in 2018, our new doctrine is to prepare for major power conflict with the United States. China is reacting to the fact that the United States has changed its military doctrine and has changed the way it's doing war planning, strategic planning, contingency planning, and budgeting so that the U.S. is actually preparing for war with China. I think the U.S. hopes that the threat of war in China with China, probably either in the East China Sea or the South China Sea, somewhere in the neighborhood of China, will put so much pressure on the Chinese government authorities that some section of the Communist Party, some section of the Chinese establishment will end up thinking like Gorbachev thought in the 1980s, that if they kind of like sort of give the United States everything it's demanding, that the United States will treat them more nicely, which again, as Gorbachev and the Soviet Union learned, was a complete fantasy. But, you know, I think the United States hopes that there will be a division within the Communist Party of China, maybe after Xi Jinping is no longer head of state and he's on his third term, which expires in four years when he's 75 years old. The U.S. is trying to put enormous pressure on China, preparing for war with China in order to create cracks within the Chinese establishment or to weaken China or to divert attention from China. And if there's a military clash in the East China Sea or South China Sea or somewhere in the Pacific, the U.S. military strategists are gambling that China won't escalate and fight back on a global level that the U.S. will be able to contain the conflict to the Asia-Pacific region because China will recognize that the U.S. has nuclear primacy or that China will be entirely destroyed in a U.S.-Chinese nuclear war. So the U.S. is playing chicken with China, hoping that all of this pressure leads to a, you know, a struggle inside of China hoping for an outcome like what happened in the Soviet Union, where the Communist Party itself essentially broke apart and different factions went to into struggle with each other during the Gorbachev-Yeltsin years. And basically, the whole country was basically undone almost overnight within a few years. That's what the U.S. strategy is, but they're preparing for war. And then all those headlines you read, Nicole, they're like, telling the American people the main complaint, the main worry is not that there will be a war with China. Again, it's gratuitous because the U.S. is leading the charge towards war. It's not that there will be a war, but the U.S. isn't prepared fully to win the war. So the American people are being told, one, war is inevitable with China, and two, you have to spend more and more of your precious resources to get ready for the war. So get ready to give more and more of the national treasury to the military contractors, while Americans can't afford their cars, can't afford car insurance, can't afford home insurance, rents are sky high. But again, this is the kind of propaganda that comes from a system where the U.S. government, the imperial government, the imperialist government representing multinational corporations and the military industrial complex 
are working with giant mega monopoly media corporations to basically say the same thing, to echo the same message so that the American people are completely propagandized. Again, Nicole, this is why we need the socialist program. This is why we need breakthrough news. This is why we need alternative media, because this is a monumental challenge to fight for the hearts and minds of the people who are being so heavily propagandized by a state which isn't a welfare state. It is a warfare state committed to war, dedicated to war, organized to go to war. And for people who care about peace, care about social justice, we have to create a powerful alternative media that can do battle with those kind of media outlets because how the American people think will determine how they feel and how they think and how they feel will determine whether or not they act. That's exactly right. So thank you to everyone who is already supporting the show, who's already sharing it with friends, colleagues, coworkers, family, and to anybody who's all the way at the end of the show today and you haven't shared the show with a friend or with a family member and you haven't yet subscribed and started supporting this show, this show is a labor of love, but it does take a lot of effort and time and resources to to make it happen. So do your part. We appreciate you. $5 a month, super helpful. $10, $15, $20, $50 a month. Anything you can do is incredibly helpful to keep this going and not just to keep this going, but to expand it. We need to get this so, so much bigger and reaching so many more people. So we deeply appreciate all of the support from everyone who is listening, all of our community. And we thank you so much. We will see you next week. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.